does the Bible have errors in it? Michael Gleghorn examines the apparent contradictions between Kings and Chronicles, now on Probe. Over the past year and a half, my wife has been working on what might be called a visual Bible. By training and profession, my wife is a graphic designer. She tends to understand things best when she can visualize them in some way. Hence, when she began team teaching a women's Bible study that covers the entire Bible in just two years, she felt the need to create visuals of what she was studying in order to help her grasp some of the key points in a single glance. Thus, week by week, as she readied herself for class, she also prepared a wide array of graphically designed visuals of the written contents of Scripture. Everything was going fairly well until she came to the Old Testament books of Kings and Chronicles. Since these books give us a great deal of information about the kings of Israel and Judah, including the order in which they reigned, the lengths of their reigns, and so on, she decided to create some charts that would present all of this information visually. She had no idea that she was about to enter one of the most baffling and perplexing issues of biblical chronology. To put it bluntly, the chronology of Kings and Chronicles initially appears to be a hopelessly muddled and even downright contradictory mess. Examining this material as an intelligent layperson, my wife could make no sense of it at all. It also meant that she could not represent the material in a visually coherent way. Feeling increasingly frustrated, she asked if I knew of any books that dealt with these problems. Although this is an area I know little about, I remembered a book which, I had heard, handled these issues quite well. That book, The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings, by Edwin Tila, offered her some much-needed help in making sense of the apparently confused and contradictory information in the books of Kings and Chronicles. Although this book did not solve all the difficulties she was facing, it did bring a great deal of order to the apparent chaos of this section of Scripture. In the remainder of this program, we'll first consider the problems posed by the mysterious numbers of the Hebrew kings. Afterward, we'll briefly look at how all of these problems have been solved by contemporary scholars, so that what was previously thought of as a hopeless muddle is instead a testimony to the accuracy of the historical parts of the Old Testament. Tune in tomorrow for more on this intriguing issue. This has been Probe with your host, Dr. Michael Gleghorn. Get your free copy of Michael's transcript, The Reliability of Kings and Chronicles, at probe.org. Again, that's probe.org. Then join us next time as we help you proclaim the truth and live the truth here on Probe. In the original preface to the mysterious numbers of the Hebrew kings, Edwin Tila began his discussion with these words, quote, For more than 2,000 years, Hebrew chronology has been a serious problem for Old Testament scholars. Every effort to weave the chronological data of the kings of Israel and Judah into some sort of harmonious scheme seemed doomed to failure. The numbers for the one kingdom could not, it seemed, be made to agree with the numbers of the other, end quote. Indeed, the difficulties with Old Testament chronology at this point were so great that many scholars simply assumed that the biblical records were unreliable. But why? What was it about these numbers that made so many scholars think they were in error? Since we'll later be discussing the two different kingdoms of Israel and Judah, let's begin by considering two imaginary kingdoms, both of which celebrate a new king coming to the throne on March 1st of the same year. In other words, both kings begin their reigns on exactly the same day. 
Now one would probably think that, as the ensuing years go by, court historians from both kingdoms would agree about how many years each of these kings have ruled their kingdoms. But in fact, this is not necessarily true. Suppose that one of these kingdoms counts the first year of their new king's reign from his first day on the throne. If he began his reign on March 1st of the year 2000, then this is considered the first year of his reign. On January 1st, 2001, he thus begins the second year of his reign. But suppose that in the other kingdom, the year 2000 is regarded as the last year of the prior king's reign. In this kingdom, then, even though a new king began to reign in the year 2000, the first official year of his reign is counted from the beginning of the new year, January 1st, 2001. Hence, although both kings began to rule on precisely the same day, the years of their reigns are counted differently. The first king begins his second year of rule on January 1st, 2001, while the second king only begins his first official year at that time. This is just one of many issues that complicate the dating of the kings of Israel and Judah as they're recorded for us in the Bible. Once these issues are taken into account, however, a completely harmonious chronology of these kings becomes possible. We'll consider a biblical example tomorrow. This week we're looking at some of the chronological puzzles in the biblical books of Kings and Chronicles. With apologies for the unavoidable names and numbers which follow, let's consider an example. After the ten tribes split from Judah and Benjamin to form the northern kingdom of Israel, their first ruler was Jeroboam. Jeroboam was followed by his son Nadab. With Nadab we have a series of synchronisms with the long reign of Asa of the southern kingdom in Judah. The first synchronism is that Nadab began to reign in year two of Asa. The Bible then says that Nadab reigned two years and died in year three of Asa. But it is only one year from Asa's second year to his third year. So how could Nadab begin in year two of Asa, reign two years, and die in Asa's third year? Next, Baasha, who killed Nadab, is said to reign twenty-four years, starting in year three of Asa. This should surely put his end, twenty-four years later, in Asa's twenty-seventh year. But the Bible says that Baasha died in year 26 of Asa, not year 27. Baasha's son Elah reigned two years, and his death was not in year 28 of Asa, that is, 26 plus 2, but in year 27. At this point we have a decision to make. We could decide that all of this shows that the Bible is not to be trusted in its numerical and historical statements. This is the path taken by critics, who say that these parts of the Bible were invented many years later than the happenings they describe. Or, we could give the authors of these texts the benefit of the doubt, and consider that these texts show a consistent pattern. The pattern is that the northern kingdom was counting the years of reign for their kings in the fashion mentioned in yesterday's talk, where a king could count the year in which he came to the throne as his first year of reign, so that even if he only reigned exactly one year, he would be given credit for the calendar year in which he became king, and also for the calendar year in which he died. This is a method that was used by other Near Eastern kingdoms. With the second approach, success has been achieved in reconstructing the history and exact chronology of the Hebrew kingdom period. Tomorrow we will consider other factors necessary in understanding the so-called mysterious numbers of the Bible. 
Yesterday, we saw a pattern in the chronological numbers that the Bible gives for the first years of the divided kingdom. We saw that, in these early years at least, the northern kingdom was counting the year that a king died twice, once for him and once for his successor, so that one year must be subtracted from a reign length when counting elapsed time. By carefully considering the facts as given in the Bible itself, we can determine when the two kingdoms were using this method of counting and when they were using the other method, in which a king's first year was not counted until he reigned a full calendar year. The Bible also gives us sufficient information to determine when there was a co-regency. The word co-regency is not a biblical word, but the principle is there. A co-regency begins when the reigning king appoints one of his sons as his successor. This was always a smart thing to do. We have an example in our own time. When Kim Jong-il, the dictator of North Korea, became ill, he appointed his son, Kim Jong-un, as his successor, so there wouldn't be any trouble when he died. In the Bible, after two of David's sons, Absalom and then Adonijah, tried to usurp the kingdom from their father, the prophet Nathan told David to make it known who was to be his successor. David then had Nathan perform a public anointing of Solomon. Another example of a co-regency is when Uzziah was struck with leprosy and had to live in a separate house so that his son Jotham became the real ruler of the land. Other co-regencies are not quite so obvious, but the books of Kings and Chronicles always give us enough information so that we can determine when the years of a king's reign are being measured from the start of a sole reign or from the start of a co-regency. For the northern kingdom, Israel, there are also two cases of a rival reign, similar to the rival reigns of Egyptian pharaohs that Egyptologists take into account when reconstructing the chronology of Egypt. As an example, Omri, the father of Ahab, is said to have reigned for 12 years. But this only makes sense if the 12 years includes the five years in which he had a rival, Tibni, reigning in a different capital. Co-regencies and rival reigns are the second major key to understanding the chronology of the Hebrew Kingdom period. In previous sessions, we considered two factors to take into account when interpreting the rich chronological data of Kings and Chronicles. The first is that there were two ways of counting the first year of a king's reign. It might be counted twice, once for him and once for the king who died in that year, or just once, so that the king's first year was his first full year of reign. The second factor was that occasionally a king's reign was measured from the start of a co-regency, or rival reign, rather than from the start of his sole reign. A third principle, discovered by Edwin Tila, showed that the southern kingdom, Judah, started counting the years of a king's reign in the fall month of Tishri, while the northern kingdom, Israel, started six months earlier in the spring month of Nisan. Many earlier interpreters thought that both kingdoms started their year in Nisan, but this produced several small errors that they were unable to reconcile. Unknown to Tila, all three of these principles had been previously found back in the 1920s by a Belgian scholar. But Tila worked things out in a more satisfactory way, and so his mysterious numbers of the Hebrew kings should be the starting place for understanding the chronology of the kingdom period. Regrettably, however, Tila did not recognize that a problem he had with the text of Second Kings chapter 18 is explained by a co-regency between Ahaz and Hezekiah. His chronology also needed slight adjustments for the reign of Solomon and for the end of the kingdom period. 
Hence, in our own studies, we have followed the corrections to Tila, published in several articles by Roger Young. Young responds to the specious claim that the harmony now evident in the chronology of the kingdom period might be the result of a clever manipulation of the data by those who follow the principles outlined by Tila. Young answers, quote, The complexities of 124 exact synchronisms, rain links, and dates in First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel negate that possibility unless the data were historically authentic." End quote. With the proper understanding of the methods used by the ancient authors, the chronological data of Kings and Chronicles offer a remarkable testimony to the strict accuracy of the Bible's 400-year history of the two Hebrew kingdoms. <laughs> 